All right, so we're not going to be in Luke today exactly. We're going to be in the book of Romans. So if you want to, is that, we have it on the app, right? The passage. So if you want to follow along or you have your Bible app or whatever you want to do, follow along. We're in Romans 5. Um, But it's Christmas, right? So we have to start at least with a Christmas story. So you guys know, Kayla read it this morning, right? The most famous part of the Christmas story is one of the more famous parts outside of the church, I guess, is the the part with the shepherds, you know, the blue-collar dudes are out there, they're working. All of a sudden, boom, a bunch of angels show up. It's like, hey, guys, got this surprise for you, you know, and uh, I'm paraphrasing, right? What did I say in youth group, right? The new John version, right? Uh, and um, one of the things the angel says, right, is this verse from Luke. Um, uh, this is what the angels, are, their song, right? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, So the question today is, what is the peace that these angels are talking about? That's what we're going to, you know, um, during Advent, we're actually doing them out of order, right? There's like weeks. What is it? Week one is peace. Week two is, I don't know what they all are, hope and joy and whatever, you know, Google it. Um, But we're, so we're taking it out of order. We're doing, I think peace is the first one, but we're doing it at the end of Advent. Um, But the question is, what is this peace, right? Because Jesus didn't really live a life of peace, did he? He grew up and he was murdered. And then his followers, they told the story and then they got murdered. So this peace that these angels are talking about can't be just like the absence of conflict. It can't be like the absence of war. Because since the time that these angels made this announcement, the world has basically been at constant war. Everywhere you go, somewhere in the world, there's a war going on. People are hurting each other. And So what is this? This is a different kind of peace. This is what what we call the peace of God. So we get this phrase, the peace of God, from the book of Philippians. Paul wrote this book of Philippians. And he says, And uh, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts um, and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the question is, what is this? What is he talking about? What is the peace of God? Um, In the New Testament, it's this Greek word, and what they're doing is they're picking up on this Hebrew idea from the Old Testament. You guys have heard this word, right? Shalom. You know this word? What does it mean? Peace. Peace. There you go. See, look at that. We're getting smart already. Uh, <laughs> in classical Greek literature, when they, whenever they use this word peace, um, it always just kind of means the absence of war. But when the Bible is talking about peace, so shalom in the Old Testament and this word in the New Testament, um, it means something else, right? The angels here are not proclaiming, hey, Jesus is here and now there's going to be no conflict and there's going to be an absence of war something else is going on. Um, do you guys remember uh, we read the story um, of the woman who had the bleeding for years and years and she touched Jesus' garment and then was healed, right? So you know this story. We read this in Luke. Um, so Jesus heals this woman. Then he calls her out in front of the whole community uh, so that she would know she was saved by faith, right? And she didn't steal this healing from Jesus. Um, and at the end of it, her interaction, I'm going to read to you from Mark, but the same story. Um, her, Jesus, it, it ends like this. And he said to her, do I have a verse for this? Yeah. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus tells her, go with this peace. Something you didn't have 30 seconds ago. Something in you has changed and now you need to leave with that. And it's what Jesus talked about in, in the book of John. He says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or later on he says, I have said these things to you that 
in me you may have peace. So in Jesus, we find peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is what he tells his followers. Out there is trouble and tribulation, but here with me, you can have the peace of God, right? And so what is that peace of God then? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to flush this out. What does the life of peace look like? And we're going to do that by reading um, the first part of Romans chapter 5. Um, so before we get into this, I want to say Romans, you guys read Romans? Okay, it's, it's dense, right? It's like, um, I don't know, what's that really thick bread, you know, where you're like, oh, I'm going to eat a whole piece of this. And then you take one bite and you're like, oh, I'm done. That's the book of Romans, right? So we're not going to do the whole normal dig into every aspect of this text. We're going to kind of talk about this text, but with the light of the peace of God. So there's actually a lot of stuff about this that I want to like do tangents and say, and I'm going to try. I'm going to try. All right, you guys know. Okay, here we go. Verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what he says. Because we've been justified, now we have peace. Um, Again, we don't have time to play this out. Boy, I want to tell you all about these debates about justification and N.T. Wright. Okay, we're not going to do that. Justification, let me just give you the simple definition of this. It's the part of salvation, the process of salvation, where God looks at you and goes, not guilty. Okay? So there's a lot of parts of salvation. Justification specifically is that part. It's like the courtroom language where God says, you know, you're not guilty. And because we are justified, because God looks at us, sees Jesus' perfection and goes, you guys are not guilty. Because he says that, we have peace with God. Now, this is what I want you to notice. Language in the Bible is important. Do you see how that doesn't say we have the peace of God? That's some, this is something else. Right? So we have the peace with God. Um, one of the commentaries, things, this dictionary, Bible dictionary thing that I use to research, says this. This concept refers to an objective state of peace, not a feeling of peacefulness. That's important. So because, we're going to get into this more later, but just take note of this. Because you're saved, you are at peace with God, whether you feel it or not. So this peace is an objective reality, not a subjective truth. Um, not a feeling, right? Um, this is what we're singing about with all these Christmas songs. Um, the war with God, when we rebelled against God as a, as a race, as humanity, we told God, we don't want anything to do with you. We're done, right? We're rebelling. That started the war, right? We started the war. We invaded Poland, right? We're the bad guys. <laughs> Are we the baddies? What's that from? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, we, we invaded Poland, right? Well, anyway, God now has settled this. With our justification, he says the war is over, and now we are at peace. He is no longer our enemy. Verse 2, through him, so he kind of plays out this whole, what does this look like in our lives? Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace um, which, in which we stand. So in the, in the present moment, um, well, it's sad that, uh, a lot of people think of salvation, evangelicals. We think of salvation um, in two phases, right? Not three. So we think of salvation like this. I was saved in the past and someday I'm going to heaven, right? So there's the past and there's the future. And until that, I'm just going to sit back and watch the Niners beat the Falcons and eat some Funyuns, right? Um, Boy, I haven't had Funyuns in a really long time. They're pretty gross, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's what we think, right? We're going to eat some Funyuns and just hang out. It's so misguided. 
Um, our lives now, in, the, in between those two things, are marked by something crazy amazing. And this is what it says here. Because you have peace with God, and because you've been justified, now you have access to God in your life now. Um, I just finished The West Wing. You guys know the show? Um, it's a pretty great show. Uh, it was my second or third time through. And uh, my uh, old buddy at my old church got me hooked on this show when I was like in high school, when it was out, like on TV. Anyway, so this show is about the, the staff that works at the Oval Office. And you can always, one of the things they talk about in the show that was really interesting was uh, people were more important the more access they had to the president. Right, so there were certain people, like the chief of staff, had in and out privileges with the Oval Office, which means he could just walk in and out. Or she, in the later seasons, right? Uh, Alice and Janney's character becomes the chief of staff. They could just walk in, right? To the, that means that person is really important because they have access to the president. Um, now, there, uh, the, there's an episode where this guy comes in, or this girl, sorry, comes into the Oval Office. And she meets the president. And she wasn't expecting to meet the president. She worked at the White House, but she had never met him or seen him anywhere. She works, like, in the basement. You know what I mean? She was a lawyer or something. And she meets the president. And uh, she doesn't know what to say. And she completely falls apart. And she says something ridiculous. And then the whole episode is like, you know, do you have one of those moments where when you were a kid you said something really stupid and now you still think about it when you're trying to go to sleep? You're like, oh, mm. <laughs> you know? Okay, so the whole episode is her acting like that. I can't believe I acted this way to the president. But then you have people like uh, Leo or the different people with access to the president. The way they talk to the president is still very respectful. Thank you, Mr. President. But they have a whole different tone. Mr. President, that's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> right? Like They can say things like that because they have this familiarity. Think of the throne room visions in the Bible, right? Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, 5. Some of my favorite chapters. God is so holy. God is so um, perfect. It's terrifying to the people that meet him. But now that we're justified, we can go in there and have access to our father the way that these guys had access to the president, right? This respectful familiarity. Um, no matter where you are, right, the book of Romans will later say, you can't be separated from the presence of God. We have this constant access. Think about how then that plays into feelings of peace in your own life. When, how do you feel at peace? This access to God is a huge part, Right? Um, imagine you're walking through the TL, right? Middle of the night. Uh, this happened to me a couple weeks ago. I went to a concert. I walked down from my house in Knob Hill. I walked down to the Golden Gate Theater, I think it was. Uh, no, the Warfield. I went to the Warfield to see Angels and Airwaves at the absolute last second. I ditched Melissa in heaven. Um, <laughs> I went to this concert by myself. I was like, I'll just walk. It's fine. I walked. I walked there. And I was like, afterwards, the concert gets out at 1230 or 1 or whatever. I'm going to take an Uber up the hill. I, I get out of the concert, open the Uber app, or no, it was Lyft. I open the Lyft app. Uh, 65 bucks. <laughs> what? To get a 15-minute walk? I was like, no, nah, man. Let me try Uber. So I tried the Uber app. I think I had to reinstall it. I didn't think I had it on. Same thing. It was like 65 bucks. I was like, these crooks. All right, that's it. I'm going for it. <laughs> I'm just turning around and walk. And I made it. I mean, one crazy person screamed at me and threw a, a lighter at me. Um, but other than that, I was okay, right? Anyway, so, so imagine you're like me, right? But instead of knowing where you're going and staying on all the busy streets, you take a wrong turn and you're in a dark alley in the tenderloin at one in the morning by yourself. You'd probably, if you're not an idiot, you'd be nervous, at least, Right? You would think, okay, maybe I'm not going to walk with my phone out. 
right? Okay, now imagine the same scenario. You're walking through this alley in the Tenderloin at nighttime, and SEAL Team 6 is walking behind you, strapped up. You know, they got all that, like, um, the, I don't know, that, that gear the rednecks wear to church. You know what I mean? Like the... <laughs> Now you seen these guys on Reddit? Now am I the only one? They, like the, the full-on camo and the molly system and the armored chest stuff, right? So you got SEAL Team 6 walking behind you. You're going to walk with your phone out. You're going to be whistling, right? Everything's going to be great. Why? You're going to be so calm because you've got SEAL Team 6 right there. That's how we go through life, right? Is because we have access to God. No matter where we go, we've got SEAL Team 6 behind us. We've got this perf- access to the perfect creator, um, anytime we want. He's always with us. And so we have the past is the justification. We have the present, which is the access and the presence of God. Then we have the future, which is the hope, right? That's what he says here. And we, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is looking forward um, to eternity, where the sin that we struggle with now is going to be completely removed. How great is that going to be, right? When all of a sudden you get up there and you're like, oh man, that feels so good. Like, um, <clears throat> Uh, I think I've used this illustration before, but, you know, uh, anybody here go hiking? I'm not a hiker, right? Hiking is just hipsters walking uphill. Um, that's what I always say. Uh, <laughs> urban hiking, that's just people too cheap to pay for an Uber. Um, but anyway, okay, you go hiking, right? People love hiking. You get your big old backpack full of, I don't know what goes in a backpack on a hike, but they look heavy when I watch these guys with their backpacks, you know? Yeah, lots of cliff bars. Anyway, and so you, you get to the top of the hill or mountain or whatever you hike, right? And you take it off, you throw it on the ground. You know that feeling? Uh, um, <clears throat> that's like what it's going to be like when sin is finally removed, but like times a million. You're going to get up there and you're going to take your sin off and it's going to feel so good. All of a sudden now this sin is going to be removed. Thinking about that now is what is kind of like walking up the hill with your backpack on, knowing when I get to the top, oh man, I'm going to take this backpack off, I'm going to have some water and I'm going to relax. Right? That's how we live our life. But that doesn't mean the hike isn't hard. It doesn't mean life is all uh, rainbows and cupcakes and unicorns. Right? Look what he says next. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces uh, endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So Jesus right, promises his people suffering and persecution. I've read this verse a bunch when at reading Luke. From 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I joke, right, that that's the verse nobody gets tattooed. Nobody cross-stitches that and puts it in their entryway at their house. Everybody who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. But that's true. Um, uh, Suffering in the Christian life, again, this is a whole other sermon. But in the Christian life, suffering does two things. The first thing it does is God uses it like sandpaper to, you know, get your rough spots off, you know, to smooth things over, to fix your life. Um, The second thing that suffering does is it reveals your idols, right? Because suffering, when you suffer, the thing that you're the most um, reliant on to make yourself happy, all of a sudden you realize is not going to work, right? Until you get to those low points. And honestly, with my walk with the Lord, this is how I became a believer, was I was like the most arrogant, proud little snot 16, 17-year-old that you've ever met, right? Like, you know that kid that you meet him and you're like, oh, I want to kill this kid, right? This is, (laughs) that was me. That was who I was. I was awful. And then all of a sudden, God just broke everything in my life down to the very bottom, 
And I was like, oh, none of this stuff works. There's got to be something else. And then built me back up. And that's, but that's what happened, right? In that suffering, God revealed my idols and how that stuff wasn't going to work. And so peace, the peace of God, right, is peace in our lives despite our circumstances, not an automatic delivery from them, right? So no matter what Joel Osteen or Kenneth Copeland tell you, um, boy, Reddit was really roasting Kenneth Copeland the other day about his... Uh, 18,000 square foot tax-free home because it's the, uh, the parsonage or whatever, you know, <laughs> boy, with a hello pad and an air, private airport. Um, anyway, no matter what those guys tell you, peace is not, oh, now your life's going to be perfect. Peace is, you're going to have this peace of God uh, because of the Holy Spirit, despite your, your suffering. And he talks next about the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So this idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out is what we see in Acts chapter 2. Church gets together. Let's have a prayer meeting. right? And they start, and then all of a sudden there's tongues of fire and shaking, and the Spirit is poured out, and there's this great movement of God where thousands of people get saved. right? The, the, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, what he does is he takes all of these truths that Paul's talking about and he hammers them deeper and deeper and deeper into our souls. And um, have you ever seen that actually? Um, where was I? It was super annoying. I was sitting at a coffee shop and I got my coffee and I was like, oh, I'm going to sit on the patio. Oh man, now I don't remember where this was. Anyway, I went and sat out on the patio and then I heard clunk, clunk. And I went, what is that noise? And I looked out, and there was this giant machine, like, down the block that there was this big pole, uh, you know, some sort of foundation. I don't, I'm, I've, okay, I don't build things. I don't know how stuff works, you know. Um, but there was this big pole, something for the foundation, and there was this huge, like, hammer, clunk, and it would hit it, and it would hammer it in, clunk, and it would hammer it in. And, okay, so, but it was this much at a time. Anyway, I sat out there for, like, two hours, and this thing moved, like, eight feet into the ground. <laughs> it was taking forever. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Through our, through our lives, he's taking these truths and he's just clunk, clunk, clunk. He's putting them deeper and deeper. And that's why most of the sermons all sound very similar, right? Because my job is not to come up here every week with the most creative, innovative, brand new information. It's to take the same old crap and be like, guys, this is how the gospel works. And then as I say this to you, the Holy Spirit goes clunk, 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 and he hammers this stuff into your heart. And then all of a sudden, you realize, boy, I really understand these things that I've known for years a lot better as I've participated in the life of the church, right? And so as that happens, the peace of God comes with it. So the Holy Spirit works. Next, um, peace comes. The next idea, he says, is peace comes when we understand one of these truths that you hear every week is how much you don't deserve to be saved. And the more that that truth gets hammered into your life, the more sense of peace that you'll feel. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So your salvation came when you were weak. Um, the idea in the Bible is very clear. You stink. <laughs> right? You're terrible. Uh, humanity, we stink. We're dirty. We're broken. The Bible even says we're dead in our sins. Right? We're not just sick. And we need the cure. We're like all the way dead and we need somebody to bring us back to life. And we don't deserve any of this salvation. And so the point here that Paul is making is you can see how much God loves you when you realize how much you don't deserve salvation. 
if there's a little bit of you that thinks, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Like, God saved me because of who I am, right? That's why I'm a good, no, right? <laughs> when you're thinking like that, you don't really understand grace. And then he says here, well, what about, do you see where he's like, uh, well, maybe for a righteous person, though for a good person, okay, without getting into a whole thing with the book of Romans, I think what he's saying here is um, you would die, you would never die for somebody you just respect. You might die for somebody you love. That's what most commentators think he's saying. But what's unheard of is what Jesus did, which is dying for your enemies. Um, Jesus never waits till people get it together and then says, okay, now I'm going to save that person. He says, the worst that you ever were, that's when he decided to save you. He says, at your worst, I'm going to go and I'm going to die and I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. He literally prayed for the people who drove nails through his arms to the cross. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. You guys know the song um, we sing here, Man of Sorrows? Right, Man of Sorrows. There's a line in there, sent from heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones who nailed him to the tree. I love that line. That's my favorite part of that song. Right, this is the love of God. And now Paul, like he dying for his enemies, builds on that idea with the end. This is the end of our passage today. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, that's like nine sermons right there if I was really going. Uh, so we're going to fly over this. But here's the argument. The idea is that we have a peace with God um, as we believe that he's going to finish what he started. So Paul's argument moves from lesser to greater. He loved you when you were his enemy. When you were a wicked rebel, spit in his face, that's when Jesus said, I'm going to die for you. So now that you're not his enemy, now that you have been adopted into the family of God, now that you're Jesus' brother, you're a son or daughter of God, right? Uh, why would he stop now? Why would he stop loving you now? And so the promise is he's going to finish what he started. Again, in the evangelical world, we've decided for some reason, well, I know why. Uh, there's a guy named Charles Finney um, who came up with this whole idea that I can trick people into salvation. This is like the eight, early 1800s, late 1700s maybe. And he goes, um, he, he, he invented a lot of the stuff that we do in the evangelical world. Come on down the aisle and pray a prayer. I'm going to mess with people's emotions and get them to do this one-time thing. And if they say this secret incantation one time, then they're in. Right? So he invented all this stuff, and he was terrible, and his theology was awful. And then a guy came along named Billy Graham who took all of his methods with like more solid theological base and a good heart. you know. But I, anyway, and he, he said this is how it works still. And so in the evangelical mind, we think, oh, yeah, salvation's a process. I go to the Billy Graham crusade, and I make a decision, and I walk down the aisle, and I pray the prayer, and then I'm saved. But the picture in the Bible is that your salvation is not a one-time event. It's a process, right? And if you're thinking, oh, I just did this and now I can do whatever I want, <laughs> and you don't really get it, right? Salvation is this process. It starts with the regeneration and justification. Anyway, if you want to know the order of it, Google ordo salutis, 
means the order of salvation, right? But we're not going to get into the whole thing. But basically, there's steps to this. There's a process that happens. It started back then when you were justified, and God looked at you and said, not guilty. But there's more stuff that happens leading to glorification in the end times, when you come into heaven and sin is ultimately removed. Um, in 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18, right, uh, Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But this is the important part. But to those of us who are being saved, right, it is the power of God. Do you see that? Paul says, to those of us who are in this process of salvation. And so here's the thing. You were saved back then. You're being saved right now, and you're going to be saved in the future. And that's the life of the follower of Jesus. And so part of our peace with God, or sorry, the peace of God that we feel in our lives comes from having an actual trust that what he started back then, he's doing now. And what he's doing now, he's going to finish in the future. And the more you see that process and you trust God for that process, the way that you trusted him for your initial salvation, the more of that sense of peace that you're going to have in your life. All right. um, Yeah, so that's our text, right? Romans 5. Let's compare what we just read with the world's path to peace. Right? We're not the only ones in the world that talk about peace, right? (laughs) Right, the hippies? Peace, man. Um, uh, there's a lot of, there's a, when I was researching this sermon um, a couple weeks ago, I, I started Googling around. How, how do I find inner peace, right? And boy, I got to page three of Google, you guys. I did some real research here. It's a dark and lonely place on page three of Google. <laughs> anyway, here's what I found. Um, I, I, I grabbed a whole bunch of quotes. This is different things that people said about peace. Um, so this is Buddha, right? Peace comes from within. Do not seek it without. Like on the outside. Okay, so this is what Buddha, Buddhism says. Peace comes from somewhere deep within you. So deep down, somewhere inside of your inner being, there's good. And what you need to do is burrow down, find that good, and bring it out. Right, from deep down within you. That's one, that's one option. Um, here's a dude, uh, Roy Bennett. I have two quotes from him. He wrote a book, The Light of the Heart. Uh, he says, when you do the right thing, you get this feeling of peace and serenity associated with it. Do it again and again. So do you see his path to inner peace is the same as the Pharisees. Do something. Right? The more good that you do, the better you are and the better you'll feel. So inner peace comes from your good works. Then later on, he says this, uh, learning to distance yourself from all the negativity is one of the greatest lessons to achieve inner peace. Okay, well, wait, is it, this is the same guy, (laughs) right? Which one is it? Is it doing good stuff? Or here he says, if you're not at peace, inner peace, it's somebody else's fault. You're too close to other people. So wait, is it something you do or is it something other people do? He almost contradicts himself there. Uh, The next one. Um, is, let's see, Elizabeth Gilbert, the Eat, Pray, Love uh, lady. Uh, I'm going to be honest, not read the book. Might be, sh- might be shocking. Didn't see, is it a movie? Didn't see the movie either. <laughs> this is what she says. We don't realize that somewhere within us all, there does exist a supreme self who is eternally at peace. So uh, a lot of what she's getting into is, you guys have heard me ramble on and on about uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and the existentialism right the idea that you're born with a blank slate um, and to give yourself meaning you need to fill your life with you create your own meaning 
Um, it's this philosophical idea. And that's kind of what she's saying here is um, some, uh, there, you got to create your own meaning and be your truest self, right? It's why in the Western world, the worst sin that you can commit is being inauthentic, right? Not being your true self. That comes from a lot of this stuff. All right, here's H.G. Um, Wells. You guys know H.G. Wells wrote a lot of... I went a couple years ago. I read a, like a ton of his books. Fantastic writer. Pretty antagonistic to our faith. Uh, he says, here I am at 65, still seeking for peace. So H.G. Wells says inner peace is elusive, right? 65-year-old successful guy that everybody looks to who really contributed to this sort of... Um, materialistic, secular worldview that everybody in our world believes now. That guy says, I got to be 65. I don't know what he said at 75. I don't even know when he died. (laughs) I'm guessing he never found it. But what he says is, this peace is elusive. Uh, Next, uh, inner peace can be reached only when we practice forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of the past and therefore the means for correcting our misperceptions. So inner peace comes here from letting go of grudges. So if you lack inner peace, it's your own fault. It's because you're not really a forgiving person, right? Next, uh, peace of mind comes from not wanting to change others. So here, inner peace comes from being laid back and not interfering in other people's lives. I don't want, I don't, like almost, this is the most individualistic take Right, you guys know I'm always railing on Western individualism, how we pretend like we're not part of a community and we pretend you know, like I'm on an island. That's what he's saying here is just let them be them, I'll be me. The more individualistic we can be, the more inner peace we'll each feel. And the lack of peace comes from trying to be part of a community. <laughs> what, really? That's what you think? Tell that to nine-tenths of the world who doesn't think that way. Um, okay, here we go. Fran Leibowitz, you know the author... Uh, there's no such thing as inner peace. There's only nervousness and death. Wow, Fran, tell us what you really think, right? Uh, <laughs> pretty grim, right? It'll, okay, I'll say, out of all of the ones that I just read, this is the one I appreciate the most, maybe H.G. Wells, because this is honest. This is her spending her life trying to find this peace, not finding it, and going, all right, this is what we have, nervousness and death. The quickest way, this is Jim McDonald, the quickest way to experience the peace inside is to learn to recognize when I'm not at peace. So here, inner peace comes from being totally self-aware. The more that you're reflective, um, the more time you spend thinking about yourself, the more peace you will have. Okay, so here's the question then. All these, there was, there's a bunch, you know, there was like 15 of these I cut out of here. Because <laughs> um, Niners are on at one. Um, does this work, Right? With all these solutions, here's the problem. None of these are enough. Because you don't have the ability to suck it up, look within yourself, and access some deep reservoir of inner peace. That's not how it works. This, the human heart is restless. And the more you deep dig down into the human heart, what you're going to find is darkness and unrest. And wickedness and pride and all of these horrible things that happen to us because of the fall. And so... You know, we have the podcast, people are listening to the podcast, right? People looking into the faith, questioning the faith. What I would encourage you to do is really think about this. Why aren't you at peace? Why aren't you at rest? Right? Is, what have you tried? My guess is, 
if you'd figured this out, you wouldn't be at church or listening to the podcast, right? So what I would like to do now is take a sec and look at the gospel picture again. What does the gospel say? Compared to all of these things, what's our, what do we believe? Uh, Keller, Tim Keller, pastor in New York, said this. Isaac goes to that church, right? Still? Used to. Used to? Oh, whew. There's a story there, boy. He just gave me some eyeballs. Uh, I thought you worked there. Somebody got fired. All right. Uh, <laughs> I could, this is what Keller says. I could go to plenty of books um, and plenty of great literary works that basically say the same thing. If you want peace, don't think too hard. The difference between that kind of peace and the, uh, and the peace, sorry, that kind of peace and Christ's kind of peace is the world's peace comes from closing your eyes to the truth and Christian peace comes from opening your eyes to the truth. Christian peace arises from a greater awareness of your true condition. That's important. Your true condition. The more you understand who you really are, that's the first step to finding this sort of peace of God. And so what's the story? How does this work? Well, you guys know I use this illustration a lot, the dance of God. The Trinity, let's tell the whole story. The Trinity is three of them, right? And they're constantly serving and loving the other two. And so within the Godhead is perfect love. That's how we get to say God is love, where no other religion can say that, right? Because our God is a triunity. And so they're always serving and loving um, the other two. And we call that the dance of the Trinity, the dance of God. And our creation, what happened was God created us to be a part of this dance. We're we're meant to be a part of this relationship. And what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is we spit in God's face and we said, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to be a part of this dance anymore. I want to be the Lord of my own life. I don't want to serve you. I want to serve me. And we started the war. And we left the dance to be the center. And that, what that did was it caused this great sense of unrest and our lack of peace. We were created to be part of this dance of the Trinity, right? This dance with God, this perfect relationship. And the unrest comes from the fact that, boom, we've been separated from that. And so... Um, God would have been perfectly within his right at that moment to just say, screw this, throw down, (laughs) here's the wrath. This is all that you guys get in one swift move. Nobody could have blamed him. Nobody could have said that's unjust. But that's not what he did. What he did was Genesis 3.15. The first, that we call this the first gospel, right? I'll put enmity, this is him um, cursing the enemy, right? Cursing the devil. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, And he talks about the Messiah coming. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy. So from the very beginning, God in his infinite mercy laid out the gospel. And what he said was a descendant of Eve, specifically, would step in and fix this breach. Fix the war. right? Bring peace between God and these rebels. So here's the question then. As you read the Bible, you're supposed to ask, who is the guy? Is it Cain? No, right? Very quickly, it's not Cain, and it's obviously not Abel. Um, uh, Is it Abraham? No, right? You start to think, maybe it could be this guy. God chooses him, brings him out, and then all of a sudden, he turns out to be pretty awful and not, (laughs) you know, I mean, he's the father of faith who doesn't always have a lot of faith. Uh, Is it David? Uh, Bathsheba's husband would say probably not. Um, Well, then you keep going, right? Is it this king or that king? Then this baby is born, And the angels call out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We open up the Gospels, and this kid is born. And what we learn is, this is the one who's going to bring back 
the people to God. He is going to bridge the gap and bring this peace. But how does he do it? This is how he does it. He steps into the conflict and he takes the wrath of God in our place. So this Bethlehem Messiah, this baby, grows up and is brutally murdered. He takes the ultimate violence, the wrath of God, so that we then could be moved from rebels to children. He goes through the opposite of peace so that we could have ultimate peace. He gets killed so that we get credit for his perfection. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness. Because of that now, we are at peace with God. The war is over. We're on his side. That's the objective truth. But, again, the story doesn't end there. Like Paul said in Romans, this peace with God, right, it impacts our present and our future. So in the present, we're filled with the Holy Spirit that's been given to us as a gift because of the resurrection of Jesus, who gives us access to the throne of God. And in the future, we have this hope that he's going to finish what he started. And so hopefully now you can see the building blocks. This is the way this passage works, this idea. You can see the chain. We have peace with God. The forgiveness in the past, the war is over, is the foundation of our peace, of the feelings of the peace of God. And so if you don't have that peace with God, if you're not a follower and you're not resting your life in him, there's no way to ultimately find that peace of God. But the more that you live into what's already true about you, that the war is over and you're a child of God, the more that you will feel his presence now and the more that you will have hope in your eternal salvation in the future. So again, for those who are looking into the faith or whatever, um, don't be satisfied with a restless heart like Fran Leibowitz. Right? We're all going to die and life is pointless. Right? Don't, don't be satisfied with that. You're not built to be empty. Right? You, you're not meant to be restless, right? You're meant for real inner peace. You're meant to have a, an inner life that is perfectly at peace with God. And so the challenge for those looking into the faith or whatever, right, is um, compare your story with the gospel story and ask yourself, is what I'm doing really working? For the disciples of Jesus, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the question is, how can I feel this? Right? I don't quite feel the peace of God the way that I want to. Um, one problem with Americans, uh, one of many, is we let our feelings steer the ship, right? This isn't true until I feel it, right? That's kind of our motto. The biblical perspective goes the other way. The truth of your peace with God is absolutely true about you, whether you feel it or not. Our church is below a bowling alley. What's the line from The Simpsons? <laughs> below a bowling alley. I live below a bowling alley and above another one. <laughs> uh, anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, the, the peace of God, the war is over, that is true of you whether you feel it or not. And so what you need to do is leave here today and lean into that truth. Live your life like it's absolutely true. And what it's going to do is going to drag your feelings along with you. Um, but here's the end. In a world of, we live in a world of people who are not at rest, who are not at peace, and who are looking for it. And we're the ones as the followers of Jesus who have that peace. Right? We have access to the Prince of Peace himself. What that should do is it should take the people of God and make us stick out like a sore thumb in this world. Right? People should see you, they should see our church, and they should go, I want the peace that those people have. They suffer, and they're still at peace. Life doesn't go their way, and they're still at peace. Life does go their way. They're at, you know, like We should be the people of peace. 
Um, I told you before, I'm going to beat you to death with our Pabst pathway. Um, for you guys, then guests and whatnot. Pabst, this is what we do at the porch. Um, it's our pathway to reach out to our friends and neighbors. So Pabst is the nasty hipster beer, right? Uh, we took that. It's pray for people, ask them about their life, bless them in ways nobody else would, share your personal story with them, and then talk to them about the gospel. So here's the thing. In that Pabst pathway, a lot of us are afraid to talk about our lives. The sharing part can get a little scary. Here's the thing, though. You have, if you're living this life with the peace of God, you have this awesome story that people are looking for. You have what other people want. And that's what you should share about is, look, this is how I have peace. And as you do that, you point people to Jesus and you talk about the gospel, right? 